1 Timothy, we're in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 to 25. And in that text that we're going to look at this morning, we're talking about, we're learning some more about elders. This is a helpful thing. Uh, Paul already talked about elders back in chapter 3. He talked about their qualifications. Well, in that chapter, he talked about them as being overseers. He used the term overseers. And we've seen in other passages such as Acts chapter 20 and 1 Peter 5 and, and Titus chapter 1 that the term elder and overseer are interchangeable. They're referring to the same office or leadership role in the church. Elder has more to do with the um, family status of being an older person in the faith, more mature in the faith than some may be. And overseer has more to do with their function of giving oversight and leadership to the church. So another term associated with elders shows up in Acts chapter 20 and 1 Peter 5. It's the word shepherd or pastor. So it talks about, again, the, the role of an elder is to shepherd the church or to give pastoral oversight to the church. And uh, they ensure that Christ's people are being fed the word of God, which includes protecting them from eating the wrong kind of food that is not from God's word, not from the gospel. So that's what elder, pastor, shepherds, overseers do. And in today's passage, Paul describes how we are to respond to the service of elders and how we deal with the sins of elders. Yeah, some, some of us elders sin. I won't say which ones, but it happens sometimes. And actually that word comes up like 75 times in this message, so just be brace your ears for hearing the word sin a lot this morning. Yeah, it's exciting. And so how this also impacts the appointing or the commissioning of elders. And the reason it's important is because elders impact the health of the church. They impact your, your spiritual care. So I'm going to ask you to stand up once more, and we're going to read from this passage. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 to 25. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some men are conspicuous going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Father, we ask you would search our hearts this morning through your spirit. Grant me strength and heart to declare your truth in the Holy Spirit. Grant us, Father, grace to hear and receive your word so we become more like Jesus Christ and his will for us. We ask this according to your great mercy in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So in verse 17 that the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. 
especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So Paul's appointed Timothy to lead the church in Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey, at least until he can ensure the leadership is in good shape and some false teaching is stopped because that was going on. Paul exhorts Timothy to consider the elders who rule or lead well worthy of double honor. So what are Paul's criteria for elders who rule well? Well, some were willing or able to give more focus to the work, especially or particularly to preaching and teaching. So what does he mean by double honor? What's that talking about? Well, in part, at least, he means that they should receive some pay for their work. We'll see that more clearly in the next verse. Um, does double honor mean that they should get double the pay for the, in comparison to those who don't rule well? No. What, he, what he's saying is that they should get both types of honor, both paid honor and respect. So we should respect them and pay them. That's what he's saying. In fact, in, an, in another passage, in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 to 13, he says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. So Paul encourages the congregation to respect elders for their work. All elders should be honored or respected, but those who work and labor at preaching and teaching should receive respect and pay. It's always needful to have those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Harvest is led by an elder team, some of whom have other jobs and who sacrifice their time for shepherding the church. Others are paid to be freed up to give focused leadership to areas of ministry and to teaching and preaching God's word. So we got both types here. Those who are paid to oversee the church and to devote themselves to preaching and teaching are not just on a per perpetual spiritual retreat. It, it is real work. In case you wondered that. In fact, the word itself means they're to labor to exhaustion. They're to work hard at preaching and teaching and leading and shepherding. So in verse 18, we, we see where the pastor is compared to an ox. Elders are compared to, to oxen. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. The scripture continues to say this. This was from Deuteronomy back in the Old Testament, verses 25, 25 and four, uh, verse 4, chapter 25, verse 4. And it says, you shall not muzzle the ox when it treads out the grain. The ox was driven over the threshing floor by which it would separate the grain from the stalk with its hooves. And so they weren't to muzzle the ox. They were to allow the ox to, to eat from some of the grain that he was threshing. In fact, Paul quotes this same verse in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 9 through 11. He says, For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. So he likes that verse when it comes to pastors and elders. Is, is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher should thresh in hope of sharing in the, in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? And then he says in verse 14 of 1 Corinthians 9, in the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaimed the gospel should get their living from the gospel. So Paul himself um, didn't, didn't take pay when he first started spreading the gospel. He, he worked as a tent maker, so he, 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 had, he was bivocational. And later he received some funding from, from other Christians who helped him uh, carry out his mission work. And once he got churches established in a, in a new area, then the church would then uh, eventually pay to support teaching elders. 
And so the second quote in our verse, verse 518 in 1 Timothy 518, says the laborer deserves his wages. And he's quoting Jesus from Luke chapter 10. So Jesus said the laborer deserves his wages. So in case you ever wondered if we should be paying some elder pastors to, to, to work at leading the church through preaching and teaching, um, this passage says that you're supposed to do that. So thanks for being obedient to that text. If you, if you don't obey any other text in the Bible, obey that one. Yeah. Verse 19, he says, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So the requirement to not accept a charge against someone except on the basis of two or three witnesses was originally given to Israel once again in Deuteronomy 19.15. And this is serious. It's serious because to be qualified to be an elder, you need to be above reproach, which doesn't mean perfect. It means you can't have regular ongoing sin unrepentant. The other elders should not listen to an accusation brought by one person. Or if the testimony is inconsistent, if they're bringing different stories. But if at least two or three have a consistent witness to an elder's wrongdoing, the other elders should look into it. And if it's valid, they should address the accused elder. If in this process they confirm the accusation is true, then they they address the elder, they confront him, and uh, they they um, appeal to him to repent. If he does repent, which means godly sorrow, turning from the sin, confession, commitment to change, that's good. That's the goal. Bring him to repentance. But if it does have, uh, if he does repent depending on the nature of the sin and the circumstances, it may or may not still need to, to be addressed before the congregation because if his sin was relatively minor and doesn't have public impact, it doesn't need to be brought before the church. But if it does have public consequences, he committed a crime, um, he was unfaithful to his wife and people know about it, uh, even if he does repent, it still needs to be brought before the congregation. In these situations, the elder is no longer above reproach that is, he can be justly accused of wrongdoing. If the elder doesn't repent when confronted, but continues in his sin, he is to be rebuked before the church. And that's what he says in verse 20. The elder who, after being confronted with his sin, continues in it, should be rebuked in the presence of all, so that the rest of all the elders in the church, too, may fear and may feel the seriousness of sin. It's one thing to present to the body that an elder has done wrong, but that he has confessed, repented, and is involved in the process of accountability and change. That's good. He can, the body can pray for him. He can, it can be a redemptive situation. Uh, he can seek the forgiveness of the church in the spirit of redemption. It's another thing for an elder to be unrepentant and to be rebuked, to be reproved before the, before the church. But even this is done with a redemptive purpose so that all can pray for him and he might be brought to repentance. So that's the need for sinning elders. It is always good to not just be left to go on and sin. It's always a good thing to not just be left to go on and sin, to cover it up. The worst thing that can happen is that no one confronts you. If someone is aware that you're sinning and they don't confront you, you may think that's a good thing, like, man, I'm off the hook. But it's actually setting you up for greater ruin. It may be painful, 
but it is freeing and, and healing to have your sin exposed if it leads you to repent. It's always good to repent. You never have to remain stuck in your sin. It's always good to repent. Whatever it takes. And sometimes whatever it takes is hard. A famous pastor who has written several books on grace, God being gracious to sinners, uh, was being unfaithful to his wife. He pastored a, a, a prominent church in another state. There were a couple of elders who, who knew about it and were not taking appropriate action. Eventually, it was found out, and he was required to leave the pastorate of the church. The elders were not honoring God, nor were they serving the church, nor were they helping this pastor by not bringing us into life. Nevertheless, we must be careful about receiving accusation against elders because some love nothing more than to take shots at leaders. Some it's their favorite sport. They consider it their job to criticize leaders. It's, it's like they get, they're spring-loaded to identify and report supposed faults of leaders. In fact, it's not hard to find them because if you look very closely at all at our lives, you're going to find faults because there was only one perfect leader ever, and they crucified him. There are many sad accounts of accusations made by individuals against church leaders that were not true. They weren't checked out. They were just gossip. They were spread and, and bought into. And they, they led to the ruin and harm of the church and of the, of the pastor and his family, for sure. Damage the church because what happens to leaders impacts churches. Well, in verse 21, Paul says, that he's charging Timothy in the very presence of God and of Jesus Christ and of the elect angels to assess accusations against elders. What he's requiring of Timothy is not merely some man-made religious procedure. It's not just a, a human religious organizational thing that you do. It's, it's before God, Christ, and angels. We're assessing the issues of sin and repentance in the church. So it's, it's serious business, and it's, it's done before God. We're accountable to him for how we go about doing it. So we need to be careful about how we do it, but we need to do it. He says, keep these rules, guard these rules without prejudging, without prejudice. He's not to predetermine what is right without hearing and weighing the facts. He is not to do any of this with partiality. So just think about in our country, how are we doing with partiality and judgment? How are we doing with, with prejudging, with favoritism? Don't show favoritism, he says. Judge with justice. Don't let your personal biases influence your judgments, he says. And then in verse 22, he says, Don't be hasty in laying on of hands. In your desire to point point more elders, the worst thing you can do is to be in a hurry and just grab a warm body, somebody who seems, hey, you look good, you, you're breathing, you're, you're, um, you, you, you've got a job, you're, you're in. Don't be hasty in appointing elders. Don't rush into it. Don't be too quick to commission new elders. Otherwise, you might take part or share or participate in other sins, he says. Why is this a risk? Because if you haven't taken the time to observe them, to get to know them and be involved in their life, you may not have picked up on areas of sin. And by approving and appointing them for eldership, you become, in a sense, responsible for the impact of their sins. You condone them 
and may encourage others to, hey, if he can do it, he's a leader, I can do it. So he says, so keep yourself pure from taking part in their sins by being cautious and not rushing into commissioning them. Now, although we are not personally responsible for the sins of others, we don't, we're, we don't take personal responsibility for their choice, yet we are responsible for in, enabling people to sin and for unwisely setting them up in privileged positions before they have proven their character. In a prior church, we learned from mistakes about hiring staff and not to ignore concerns that we had because we, we needed the positions filled, and so we, we overlooked some things, and we paid the price later on. So hire slowly, fire quickly. Paul is saying to Timothy to keep himself pure from other sins by not being hasty to appoint them to leadership. So how do we select elders? So we're in the process now. We, we've identified a possible new elder. So look for a guy who's really sweating in the room. And I'll tell you the process that we go through. Our process for identifying elders involves observing their lives, observing how they serve. So we, we watch them. Are they doing the work that could carry over to being an elder? We discuss those who potentially would be good candidates for elder, and, and we pray. We then ask them if they would consider serving as an elder. They typically turn white, and they freak out a little bit. And if they are open to it, we give them some reading material, and if that doesn't scare them away, they fill out an application that explores how they're fitted to be an elder. Then we interview them and their wife if they're married. If that is a confirming step from their perspective and from our perspective, then we bring them before you and, and they share about themselves. And then we ask you to give us feedback and confirm or not confirm. And if that's good, then we bring them on as an elder. So that's how we do it. So interestingly, in verse 23, Paul at first glance seems to be making a kind of a random comment. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach. And he could be doing that. He loves Timothy. He's like a dad to Timothy. And so he might just say, hey, I need to say this while I'm, while I'm thinking of it. So he inserts this comment. But it's likely that when he exhorted Timothy to keep himself pure, he wanted to free Timothy up from his commitment to total abstinence from wine. It's not that Paul was against him being uh, an abstainer from, from wine. It wasn't that was okay for him to have that decision. But because of his health, he, he decided to exhort Timothy, hey, you need this for your stomach. And because it was believed in those days that, that wine helped out your stomach and digestion problems that you had. It was considerate of Timothy to not drink so as to avoid causing someone to stumble, maybe causing other people to think if, if the pastor drinks, then I can get drunk. But, the, but he needed it for his health, so Paul said, go ahead, have, have a little wine for your stomach. Don't go to the local bar and get gallons of it, but... Have a little bit. The scriptures are clear that we are not to get drunk. Most of us know of people who have had lives ruined by that, by, by abusing alcohol. Um, nevertheless, the scriptures don't say it's wrong to drink any alcoholic drinks. For some of us, that is the best choice. For uh, others of us, um, we, we're, we are not to get drunk or habitually use it where we can't get by without it, where we become dependent on it. So a good test question is this. 
Can I get by a day without a drink? Do I need to have it to wind down? It's a good test just to see how you're doing with that. Verse 24, the sins of some people, see, lots of sin talk in this. The sins of some people are conspicuous. Paul's returning to his reasoning as to why Timothy shouldn't be hasty in commissioning new elders. Because some people's sins are conspicuous. Their sins are obvious and evident. So it is qualifying to them. It is easy to cross them off the the short list of elder candidates. Their sins are making a clear path for them for the day of judgment. He says the sins of others appear later. So some are very obvious up front. Some sins follow after. They they trail behind them. The person with these hidden sins or inconspicuous or non-obvious sins doesn't appear to be bound for judgment like the first type of person Paul described. The person whose sins appear later, his sins will only become known in the judgment. So in commissioning elders, some are obviously not acceptable candidates since their sins are out front and and plain to see by all. Others are not so obvious. Timothy, and by application churches today, must do the best they can in in appointing elders, but ultimately only God has the perfect insight into a person's life. In the past, I've been amazed at people's assumption that church leaders have infallible insight into people's lives. Like, like we get text messages from God, hey, this person's sinning. This person's got this issue. I've had people say things like, why don't you do something about John? He's spending all the money in his budget like crazy, and his wife says they can't afford to pay the bills. And I'll say something like, well, do you know this to be true? Yes. Have you spoken to John about this yet? No. When you talk to him, like Jesus said to, and then if he repents, great, and if he doesn't, then we can get involved. It's actually easier to deal with conspicuous sins than with those that are hidden and and secretive. It's not that you you don't want a lot of obvious sinning going on, but uh, some of the most frustrating situations I've been involved in have been those in which some accusations are made, but there's no way to get at the truth. You have two godly people or godly parties who seem to have different stories about what's going on, and it's hard to get at the truth. So do us a favor. If you're going to sin, be obvious about it. Say, the pastor just told us to sin in a big way. No. Yeah, I did. If you're going to do it, do it plainly so we, we can come after you. As Paul said in chapter 3, the church is the household of God. As God's family, we are responsible to help one another grow in godliness. So we don't have the option of not addressing one another's sins, not caring enough to to help one another overcome our sins. Um, Sometimes that involves lovingly confronting the sins of our brothers and sisters. Just as in a biological family, you've got to do that sometimes in your own families, if you notice that. But we are not God. He alone is the infallible and final judge. And then in verse 25, he says in the same way that some sins are conspicuous, so also some good works are conspicuous. So whew, we finally get to talk about something good, good works. 
And just as some sins only appear later, even not until the judgment, so also there are some good deeds that are not conspicuous now but cannot remain hidden forever. Some may still yet be known in this age, but others may not be known until Jesus comes back. As far as identifying elders, some may be obvious candidates because their good deeds are obvious. They're not doing their good deeds in order to be noticed by people. Far from that, because otherwise that would be disqualifying. If you're doing your good deeds just to show off, then that's not appropriate. But if you're just serving Jesus in ways that are evident to others, thank, praise the Lord, that's great. Some are serving Jesus in settings and contexts that, in ways that don't get noticed, at least not in the short term. So in identifying good elder candidates, we should be alert for hidden gems who may be less evident, less visible in their services to Jesus. And this applies to all areas of serving and leadership. So you can pray for our church that we'll continue to produce healthy leaders in different ministries, um, servant leaders in different roles who are qualified, who are fruitful, Pray for your leaders, for Christ to raise up more Christ-honoring leaders. Character matters. We've talked a lot about sin. You may be on overload hearing about that. But we do have lots of sin to deal with. That's why we need Jesus. He is a great Savior. He bore the load of our sins on the cross. He turned away God's just judgment against us on the cross, and he overcame it in his resurrection for us. So that rather than denying and burying sin and redefining sin, so you explain it out of existence or just making it, mistakes were made, no big deal, I'm just, I'm only human, it's good for us to identify our desperate need for Jesus and to rely upon him totally for his forgiveness and cleansing. Like Paul says in Romans 5.20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So I'm going to pray for us, and we're also going to receive the offering. Uh, so the ushers come forward for that, prepare our hearts to give and, and to receive Jesus' grace. Holy Father, because you are perfectly holy, We don't get sin because we're so skewed. We're so used to it. It's so where we live. We experience it ourselves. We experience it in our families. We experience it in our communities, in our nation, in our world. And we're so dulled to the reality of how great our sin is. Therefore, we don't appreciate how great your grace is like we could and should. So I pray, Father, that for us as a church, we would be eager to encourage one another to grow in grace and the knowledge of Christ and good works. We would love one another enough to address one another when we, when we see one another stumbling into sin, sinful areas of behavior and attitudes. And Father, that's hard because we, we don't want to be judgmental. We're afraid of what people will do to us or think of us. We want to be loving as as a church family and how we deal with one another's sins. We we do want to encourage and stimulate, stir up one another to love and good deeds. And we do it, Father, all humbly before you as as those who have been purchased by Christ out of sin's prison and slavery and have been renewed and forgiven and declared right in your sight. How can you do that, Father? 
How can you declare us right when we're basically wrong in every area of our lives? It's because of Christ. He is our great leader. He is our He is the chief shepherd. He's the, the only perfect elder leader, overseer of our lives and of, of this church. So we pray, Father, we would be very, very loyal to Jesus, very committed to him, very trusting in him, very eager that he would be glorified and, and his gospel would be spread. We would be gospel people. We'd be good news people. People who hate most of all our own sins and who love the righteousness that Christ gives us. So, Father, continue to raise up people in our church, leaders of all types, who will be faithful to Jesus and grow in him. And thank you, Father, for the way you supply for us our needs. Uh, Father, not just for paying the pastors and the staff and the building costs, but, but for the spread of the gospel in our community and among the nations. Thank you for the generosity of your people who give faithfully to keep the ministry of going here. We trust you, Father, for your supply of every good gift that we need to do what you've called us to do. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.